turn in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter, the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in verse 16, as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus is in his final week. He makes his triumphal entry. He cleanses the temple. And, and this kind of kicks off the whole final week of opposition against him. The religious priests, the chief priests, the next day come and ask him by what authority he's doing these things. And Jesus counters by asking them the authority that was behind John the Baptist. And, and they had no answer for him. They refused to answer that in question. And Jesus fires off three judgment parables against the religious leaders for rejecting the Messiah, the triumphal entry, his official presentation of himself. And, and they depart having been scorched in front of the, the people now. And, and they decide that they're going to try and come back and entrap Jesus in, in his words. And so the Herodians and the Pharisees come together and ask if it's lawful to pay in taxes. And, and then the Sadducees come and they have a question about the resurrection. And then the Pharisees come back and they've got a question about which is the greatest of all of the commandments. And you remember that Jesus said that you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon this, the entire law is built. And God is love, and the fulfillment of the law is love. But the religious leader had turned religion into an, a, an exacting keeping of rules and regulations that had nothing to do with the, the heart of God. We see that Jesus then begins to show to the people and to the religious leaders the hypocrisy of what they had turned a relationship with God into. They had turned it into an outward show. They were hypocrites, and Jesus began to say how you want the best seats at the feasts. You want the recognition of people. You broaden your phylacteries. You enlarge the fringes around your robe. The good works that you do, you do it publicly so that everybody can say what an awesome, wonderful, amazing person you are. And, and so these were the, the Pharisees were those that had the utmost respect of the people. The people looked up to them as the most spiritual people in the entire nation. And here Jesus now is showing them that they were anything but religious in the true form and in their relationship with the Lord. We see that Jesus begins to pronounce the woes uh, upon them. And we had talked last time about how woe has that sense of judgment, but there is also the sense of lament at the same time. And, and so Jesus is going to show them the ways in which they have been coming up short in their worship of God. You remember that he begins that first woe was that you keep up others from entering in. You're not entering in yourselves and, and you're not allowing others to enter in. The Pharisees should have been the first ones that recognized the Messiah when he came. They sat in Moses' seat. You'll remember that means that they had the authority. They were the keepers of the scriptures and the scriptures point to Jesus Christ. And so they, when Jesus 
opens up the gates to the kingdom of heaven, they should have been the first ones in. But rather than entering in, they not only didn't enter in, but they were telling everybody else not to enter in at the same time. And Jesus says that, you know, you were supposed to take care of the widows. God has a heart for the those that are downcast and the voice of the voiceless were to be the help to the helpless. And, and the widows, they are representative along with the orphans of the most unprotected in our society. And, and so they were to be that protector. But instead of protecting them, he says, you're devouring their houses and for pretense, you're making long prayers third woe that he gave to them was the woe over the fact that they worked so hard to travel the world to make a proselyte, to make a, a convert. He says, but when you've converted them, you've converted them now, not to God, but to your own sect of Phariseeism. And, and once again, the Pharisees were not entering into the kingdom of God. And so you've had them to join a group that is not going to enter into the kingdom. And, and so Jesus is here in the rest of this chapter. We are going to see the rest of these woes. And then we are going to see Jesus lament. We see the heart of the Lord is that they would repent, that they would turn away from these actions and that they would surrender themselves to the heart of God. We see in verse 16 that it says, Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Jesus here begins to address the issue of oaths. The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, had this complex system of, of oaths. And they had oaths that were binding oaths, and then they had oaths that weren't binding. And they kept on changing the rules on what was a binding oath and what was not a binding oath. And, and really what it ended up was just being games. But even in the games that they are playing with oaths, Jesus is showing them not only the hypocrisy of, uh, of having oaths, but also even in their logic. They would say that, you know, I swear by the temple that I will perform this. And, and then they wouldn't keep it, but they would say, yes, but I didn't swear by the gold on the temple. The gold on the temple, that's a binding oath. But if you had just said the temple, that's a not a binding oath. And then Jesus says, which is greater, the temple or the gold that is there in the temple? Even, even your logic behind these oaths. He says, and whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? So here again, you know, I swear by the altar that I will give you a ride to the airport next week. You know, and it's like, where are you? Yeah, but I didn't swear by the gift on the altar, you know. And so, and then Jesus says, well, which is even greater? Is the sacrifice or the altar itself that sanctified that sacrifice, which is even greater? In verse 20, therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. 
and by him who sits on it. Here we see that Jesus once again just removes their permission to be able to play this game that they are playing with oaths and promises. The bottom line is that as men and women of God, we're to be men and women of character. Amen? That our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no. And that's what Jesus is talking about. There was no integrity now. They were hiding behind oaths and playing these games here. Jesus, back in chapter 5, said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so, you know, what was the purpose of an oath? The purpose of an oath was to assure the other person that you were telling the truth, you know? And so there is this lack of integrity when you even need to take an oath. You know, I remember when you were small when I was a young kid, you know, and, the, and someone would tell you something and you're like, is that true? And they're like, yes, it's true, I promise. And you're like, you know, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle through your eye, you know? It's like, you know, do you really, are you really telling me the truth, you know? And there's that, that doubt that you're actually telling me the truth. And, and that's the same thing that's, that's going on here is, is they're telling these oaths, he's promising these oaths, but you didn't promise the right oath, you know? It was the had my fingers crossed behind my back, you know, and like, you know, and so that was the kind of thing that, and these were the, the men that were professing to, to love God and to walk with God and to have a relationship with God. Woe to you, verse 23, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Now, the tithe was an essential part of the uh, religious uh, law, and, and in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And in Leviticus chapter 27, in all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. And so that tithe was used for the support of the temple and the Levites. Remember, the Levites were the, the priests that operated the, the temple. And so it was the duty and responsibility for the people to bring their tithe before the Lord. And we see that, you know, in the law that there was a description of the tithing, everything which is edible and is preserved and has nourishment from the soil is liable to be tithed. And so uh, it was taught that, uh, that of dill, one must tithe the seeds, the leaves, and the stalks. And, and so, you know, here were these Pharisees, and they're taking the, uh, the dill, and they're taking the seeds from the dill, and they're now counting out the tenth over to the Lord. And, you know, and they're in this exacting process of making sure that they're keeping the law, of giving that tithe to the law, to the Lord. But we see that justice and mercy 
and faith, these are the weightier issues of our relationship with God. And they, they push those aside and, and would say, yes, but look at God. We're, we're giving you our dill seeds, you know, the exact amount that, uh, that you wanted. And, and once again, they were not in right relationship with God while they were keeping this in the external. He says, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And so a, a funny saying of Jesus uh, here, you strain at a gnat. Now, remember that whenever you would eat anything that was alive, you had to drain the blood from it. Uh, but a gnat, you know, it would fly into your mouth and then they would be like, you know, and they would spit it out because it's unclean, you know, and now here they are and they're straining it, making sure that they don't, you know, even partake of a gnat. He says, but you, you're eating camels, you know, you are, you are majoring in the minors and you're minoring in the majors. You have it completely backwards. He says, woe to you. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. He uses the illustration of, of bowls and plates and you know, we do dishes, and, and when you do the dishes, you clean the inside of the, of the bowl. Can you imagine if you did dishes and you only washed the outside of the bowl and not the inside, and then you stacked them and put them away there, and the inside of all the bowls are disgusting, but the outsides are clean. You know, I gave you the clean outside of the bowl. And he says, you know, which is more important? If you were only going to clean the inside or the outside of the bowl, which is the more important one to clean? And so here we see that he's likening us to those bowls, you know, that on the outside you look clean, but the inside is just absolutely a filthy mess. He says, you know, clean the inside. And then the outside, not the other way around. And so here we see the hypocrisy of verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here we see that you know, Jesus is just revealing what is on the inside of these religious leaders. He says you're like whitewashed tombs. Now, remember that whenever you touched anything that was dead, that defiled you, and, uh, and so the tombs of the bodies of the people that had been buried, those also were considered to be unclean. And so if you touch those, you became ceremonially unclean. Now, in Jerusalem, they are all coming for the feast, and they have all of the tombs that are there in scattered throughout the, the city. And so what they would do is they would whitewash, and they would paint them white with a fresh coat of paint, so that no one would accidentally touch the tomb. Because if you've come there to celebrate the feast and you become ceremonially unclean, you're not able to and go celebrate the feast. And so they would whitewash all the tombs as a warning to all the pilgrims, all the travelers, 
Don't touch the tombs. He says, you're like those tombs. On the outside, beautiful. Look at it. Nice white coat of paint, fresh, clean. Looks amazing. But what's inside of that tomb is, is bones and dead men's people that are rotting. And, and he says, you are like that. On the outside with your phylacteries, your robes, your fringes, you, you look so righteous to the people. But God sees the heart. God sees the inward man. And so here we see that Jesus now is once again talking about that hypocrisy. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. God had sent the prophets to the nation to call them to repentance. And rather than repenting, they took the prophets and they killed the prophets. And, and now in Israel, you have the, you know, the, the, these giant monuments to the prophets that the, that the nation had killed when they had actually come. And so Jesus is saying, you know, you built monuments to them. You know, but your fathers were the ones that killed these prophets when God actually sent them. And you said, hey, if I had been alive, you know, I wouldn't have partaken in that. I would have recognized the true prophet uh, of uh, God. He says in verse 31, Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves uh, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Mm, serpents and brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of uh, hell? We see that John the Baptist, the true prophet, had come. And the people, now the religious leaders, they had rejected John the Baptist. And, and ultimately they are going to turn Christ over to be crucified. And so we see that they have followed right in the path of their fathers. He says in verse 34, Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Jesus is now becoming prophetic about the kingdom that he is setting up. And what the Jews are going to do to the Apostle Paul and to the other apostles and to those who come and bring the knowledge of the good news of Jesus Christ and how they are going to be persecuted. He says, and, and some of them will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Now, it is interesting to note that Paul the Apostle may very well have been one of those listening to Jesus when he is speaking this woe against them. Remember that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he becomes Saul, who becomes Paul, is the chief persecutor of the church. And you'll remember how he takes letters from the chief priests and he is headed to Damascus to arrest the, the Jewish Christians that he finds uh, there when Jesus uh, now encounters him on the road to Damascus. And so here we see that Jesus is talking about the, the future persecution of the Christians in verse 5, that you on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. We see that 
Jesus here goes all the way back to the first murder that is recorded, the murder of Cain, of Abel, by Cain, his brother. And, and then he brings it all the way to the, to the earliest, to the latest one who was Zechariah. And we see that Zechariah rebuked the nation for their sin and, and Joash stirred up the people to stone him to death in the very temple court. And Zechariah died saying, may the Lord see and avenge. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And so in AD 70 is when that judgment takes place, when, when Titus brings the army in and destroys Jerusalem. In verse 37, we see the lament of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. A hen, when she has chicks and danger is approaching, will call to her chicks and they will run to the mother hen and she will put her wings around them and she will protect the the chicks from the danger that is present. And, and Jesus now is... Uh, calling to these religious leaders and, and to all to come and to find that safety and that protection in the kingdom that he is setting up. And, and he calls to them, and, and yet they run away and will not receive the salvation that he has in his hands. And, and it breaks the Lord's heart. The Bible says that God wills that none should perish. God didn't create any of us with the intention that we would perish. He wants and desires that every single one of us would enter into that eternal relationship with him. But he gave every single person free will. That chick has free will. When the mother calls to it, danger is coming. That chick can either run to safety or ignore the warning and, and will be destroyed. And, and in the same way, God invites us into that eternal relationship with the Father and through Him, and, and He wills that none of us would experience eternity separated from Him. He sees the, the heart of their unrepentance. In verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you that you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Though Jesus pronounces this woe, God is not done with the nation of Israel. God is going to establish the millennial reign. Jesus Christ will rule and reign in righteousness there from the throne of David. And we the saints, we will rule and reign in righteousness with him. And when the Lord returns, they will bow the knee. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah says that they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will mourn as one who mourns for the only begotten, their only begotten son. And so the nation got it wrong in his first coming, but the nation of Israel will get it right in his second coming. As we close our study here, I wanted for just a moment 
to take a look at verse 23 where, where Jesus is talking to them about the fact that they are tithing the seeds of the dill. He says, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors, you know, going through the motions, but not having the heart that is behind it, the whitewashed tombs and, and sepulchers, the, the bowls that are clean on the outside, but not clean on the inside. And, and it got me to thinking, in, in what ways can can we be guilty of being those bowls that look good on the outside? You know, we come to church, we brush our teeth, we look good, we lift our hands, we worship the Lord, we sing our songs, we read the scriptures, but is there any way in which we are just washed on the outside, but, but not washed on the inside? And it got me to thinking about worship, when we come in to worship the Lord. And, and we've got the words that are up on the screens, and we have the, the music that is playing. And, and there is worship that takes place, which is just with the lips. It's just with the lips. We're just singing songs. Our mind is elsewhere. Our heart is elsewhere. It's just really a Christian sing-along, and, and there is that kind of activity that goes on in the church. But then there is the, the worship that engages your heart, where your lips are expressing a, the connection that you are feeling in your heart. And and we see that that is a much deeper level of worship. But then there is worship that is with your life. And the worship of God with your life is far beyond just worshiping with your heart, just an emotional connection to God, or just worshiping with your lips. That is that surrender of your entire life. I heard a tremendous statement this past week and it just absolutely cut me to the quick it said that obedience is the highest form of worship that obedience is the act of worship we see that god says that if you love me keep my commandments you demonstrate by your life that you love me, not just with lip service or not just an emotional feeling. And, and as I kind of pondered that, obedience is the highest form of worship. It reminded me of Romans chapter 12 where it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He says, you know, when you present yourself as this living sacrifice where, where you now are the offering to the Lord and, you know, and you are consumed by the Holy Spirit and, and your life becomes that offering to God. He says, that's only your reasonable service. He says, you haven't even done anything extraordinary. <laughs> that you now have just given back to God. He has given you eternal life and you surrender your life here to bring him glory. He says, that's, that's just reasonable. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so God has a, a plan for your life. And it is a rich plan. And it is a good plan. And it is not until we have sacrificed uh, our life that we can enter into the life that Christ has for us, that God has planned for us. And so there is this, this call that we see to repentance. When John the Baptist came, he came preaching repentance. Repent. Turn away from your sin, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Come and enter into the kingdom that is now being presented. And, and we see that you know, repentance is different than confession. We see that you know, confession is saying, I'm sorry for my sin, and we receive the forgiveness of sin, and we're washed, and, and that is confession. But repentance is when your heart is broken over your sin. When you begin to see your sin the way that God sees your sin. And, and that happens when, when you now engage the holiness of God. When you come into the holiness of God is when you become aware of your own sin and of your own uncleanness. And it breaks your heart. You know, I think of Isaiah in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. And I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king and the Lord of hosts. And so we see that there was this sudden awareness when he came into the presence of the holiness of God, he suddenly was aware of his own uncleanness. You remember when Peter, the apostle, and, and when they have the miraculous drought of fish and Jesus tells them to throw their nets and they're like, we, we fished all night, we haven't found any fish. And, and nevertheless, at your command, and he drops the net and and it's filled to overflowing. And, and suddenly there is that glimpse of who he is standing in front of. And the immediate response of Peter was, Depart from me, for I am a worker of iniquity. I am an unclean man. The first step of revival is repentance. It is when you see God, when you get a glimpse of the glory, of the goodness, of the power, of the majesty of, of God, of his holy perfection. And in the light of his glory, we become aware of how far we fall short, of what God intends, this 
incredible, intimate, unbroken fellowship and communion is what you were created for. And that is what heaven is going to, to be, is that connection without sin marring it. And, and revival begins with repentance and it's combined with prayer. Repentance and prayer is what brings revival. And there is a revival that started 10 days ago on the other side of our nation in Asbury, Kentucky. And, and that revival is a work of the Spirit. And it has sparked across the, the nation. It has come to our church for the last week. Our church has been experienced absolute revival of the Spirit here in our church as well. And, and I just want to encourage you to just to just experience to come on and and to just enter into that that revival that the lord is doing the lord weeps over their lack of repentance he he shows them the things that that he would have them to change in their life and and then we see that that they were unwilling but I believe that the Lord right now is calling his church to repentance. I believe that he is calling our church to repentance and, and to a, a revival that is taking place. And so I want to exhort all of us to allow the, the Holy Spirit to change us, to allow the Holy Spirit to change us from the, uh, from the inside out and to allow God to do the work that, that he so desires in our hearts and, and in our lives. May we experience in this life the fullness of what God has for us. I want the fullness that God has for me, and I want that for everybody else, the fullness that God wants for you as well. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, and, and for your mercy. And so, God, we ask that you would revive us, Lord, that there would be an awakening, a quickening, a move of your spirit, Lord, not manufactured in the flesh, but an authentic move of your spirit. Lord, may it sweep upon us and may it change us, Lord. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.